Hey, what's going on? And welcome to the Barbells and Burgers podcast. As always, I am your host, Shane Hubbard. And today we are going to finish up our myths about dieting. The first part of this was 1 through 15. And I realized about halfway through that I was not going to have a whole uh, hour. I'm not going to be able to do all 30 in an hour. So I'm going to divide it up into two different podcasts. So today we'll be talking about myths 16 through 30. And before I get started, really quickly, if you haven't checked out the uh, rating part of the podcast, make sure that you go and drop by and give it a star rating that you think it's appropriate. And leave a comment, too, if you have some extra time and let others know how you like the podcast and what you enjoy most about it. Uh, just so that we can get more comments in there, we can have more uh, people check out the podcast because that is... Uh, apparently, as I'm learning, one of the main ways that you get your podcast out to more people is that if you give, uh, you have your audience have more ratings and then give comments telling them, telling other people how they like it and you know what they're going to get out of it. I feel like this is a, a great fitness podcast. I'm all about being honest and truthful and not sugarcoating anything. Uh, and so I think it deserves a five-star rating, but you can obviously give it the rating you feel it deserves. Okay, so jumping right into episode 44, we are going to be talking about number 16 on the 30 myths about dying you need to sort of unlearn. And number 16 is going to be you have to do high intensity exercise every single week. Now, this is a myth because I think there's this idea, and this could just be marketing, this could be uh, something that's just, you know, perpetuating uh, most of the fitness information that you see online is that you have to do high intensity workouts in order to get the most fat burning or fitness effect. And that's simply not true. Now, if you want to do high intensity exercises because you're at that fitness level, that challenges you and you're minimizing the risk of injury, then more power to you. You can definitely do it. This is mostly for the person who feels as if they have to do high intensity exercises in order to lose weight. And that's not true. High intensity exercise is really easy to sell because it looks cool, it looks hard, it looks challenging, and so it sort of sells itself. Unfortunately, the mainstream fitness professionals out there who are just trying to make money and, and probably not trying to be as honest or ethically based as possible are going to feed you that information. But I will tell you straight up, you could literally just walk and do that form of exercise provided you were consistent enough, add a little bit of strength training or body weight training in there, control your calories, and you're going to lose fat just as well as somebody who's doing a high intensity workout every single week. Okay, so just understand that if you're not at the fitness level where high intensity workouts make sense for you, do not feel obligated to do them in order to lose body fat. That's certainly not the case. I would even argue against doing high intensity workouts if one, you're out of shape and two, you're significantly overweight because all that extra weight on your joints is really not going to be worth the amount of heart pounding, you know, fitness and calorie burning effect that you're going to get out of the workout. So you definitely do not have to do high intensity workouts in order to lose body fat or even be in better shape. Certainly as you get to a point where your fitness gets improved, you are going to need to do something more challenging than you did before, but make sure you do it progressionally, right? You don't go from step one and try to jump all the way up to step 20. That's not how you're going to have the most effective and, and, the best longevity within your fitness. It's about taking a step that's more challenging than the previous, 
but not so challenging that it discourages you and you completely fail at it and never want to do it again. So there's, there's, there's this fine line between doing something that's challenging, but also has a high likelihood of finishing or completion or, you know, the possibility of achieving and, and being successful at Cause you want to be successful enough to where you want to do it again, but you also want it to be challenging enough to where you feel fulfilled when you finish. And that could be a difficult place to try to figure out. Like you could sort of go all the way up to the extreme end where it's too challenging. You never want to do it again and then dial it back and realize, okay, well that was too easy. Now I got to find somewhere in the middle. Take your time with that. Don't feel obligated to try to figure out you know, what you need to do by your first workout. It took me a little while to figure out exactly what was going to work best for me and my schedule, my preference, my goals, all the things that, that were in play. I had to spend some time figuring out what sort of workout strategy, what level of intensity I could recover from, but it was also challenging. And it, I'm finally at a point now where I think I've understood that really well. And That'll be a personal journey for you. If you end up getting a coach that helps you figure that out, it's still going to be a trial and error period because as the coach gets to know you, as you get to know yourself and your fitness and where you're at, it's going to take a little trial and error. But it's important to be honest and objective and look at it like a learning process as opposed to trying to get it perfectly done the first time. All right, so that's number 16. Number 17, eating carbs at night stores those calories from the carbs as fat. I don't know where this comes from. I don't know why there's any logic or any explanation behind it, but that is 100% false. Foods do not give a shit what time of day that you eat them, and they do not interact differently with your body, especially your fat stores, based on the time that you eat them at. So I think when I was, back when this was something that was like really popular, I, I, I think it's still popular today as like a, as a mantra or whatever, but Back when I was first learning about things, there was this idea that eating carbs after a certain time would store them as fat. And the logic, I guess, or I guess the pseudo logic, is that when you eat carbs because they're energy and your body is like, okay, we're not using these, let's just store them. All right. Well, that's true for all food, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat them at night because they're carbohydrates. So if you're let's just break this down so it's easy to understand. When you eat food, a portion of it directly goes into your bloodstream to be used as energy. The rest of it essentially is stored in either your muscle cells or your fat cells. Now, this is the way that your body prioritizes storing energy. It puts some in the bloodstream for immediate use. It puts the appropriate carbohydrates and even proteins in the muscle cells. So that's what, what is typically referred to as your glycogen stores. And then everything else goes to your fat stores. The problem that I think people have is they think that once it goes to your fat, it stays there permanently. Like it's locked behind a door and it just can't get out. Your body is constantly in flux between burning and storing calories throughout the day. So for instance, if I eat a meal in the, in the morning, let's say, Part of that is used immediately in the bloodstream. Part of it is stored in glycogen if I'm eating you know, carbs and proteins. And then some of it is stored in fat cells. Then when that process has, you know, like so after a meal, between meals essentially, my body is taking energy out of glycogen stores, out of fat stores, because the blood glucose level or the blood energy level is lower. And so it needs to fuel itself more by taking energy out of storage. So you're always in this this flux where you have energy that's being stored and energy that's being burned throughout the day. It's one of the reasons why at the end of the day, if you have a negative energy balance, so you have pulled more fat out of storage than you've put in, that's what creates a calorie deficit. 
And food timing is not important for fat storage. So you don't store more calories at night because you didn't use them at night. That's not how that works. The only way that you store more calories than you burn is if you eat more calories than you burn. So it's the net balance at the end of the day that's more important. It doesn't matter for timing. Food timing really only matters for how you're going to use that fuel in a pretty immediate future. So a good example is if you're going to have a meal before a workout, you might want to prioritize a fast digesting carbohydrate and a fast digesting protein to minimize the amount of muscle breakdown during that workout and to fuel the sort of exercise that you're doing, which in this case, if we're talking about weightlifting, you're going to want to use carbohydrates for fuel because it's going to be a more efficient fuel for that type of workout. So other than that, when you eat, doesn't matter for fat loss. And, and even in that regard, it doesn't matter for fat loss. So don't be swayed into believing that when you eat calories matters more for how you store body fat. There's no scientific literature that shows that if you eat certain calories after a certain time that you're going you're gonna to store all of those calories as fat. The same metabolic processes are going to be in place whether it's 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. Okay, so that's number 17. Number 18, losing inches isn't a, as good as losing weight on the scale. Flip that around, exact opposite. Most of my clients will actually lose inches before they see a dramatic change on the scale. So I had a woman that I work with, I think I've told this story a couple times, so I'll keep it short. But I worked uh, with a woman for an entire year and her net weight loss was two pounds, but she had lost like six or seven inches off of her waist. She had dropped her body fat significantly. Everything else checked out and positive. She was stronger. She was happier with her body. She was actually leaner. She physically looked like she had probably lost about 10 pounds, but on the scale from the time that we started to the time that we finished training together, she only lost two net pounds on the scale. So... If you just look at the scale, it seems really discouraging to think that you only lost two pounds, but when you look at all the different ways in which she measured progress, strength, body composition, you know, inches lost, uh, mood, energy, all these different things were all in the positive, you would think, okay, well, she didn't really do anything because the scale didn't move. Not true at all, all right? It's one of the reasons why when I work with somebody, I teach them how the scale is useful and it's only useful to a certain degree because if you're, if you're just using it as your sole measuring purpose, you're going to get very discouraged and you're going to get very frustrated. All right. I recommend pretty much at this point that unless you have proper coaching, you shouldn't be using a scale by itself. If you want to go along this fat loss journey of your, of your, um, of your own, then you're going to want to do, or you want to want to implement more, measuring strategies. So photos, measuring body inches, and using a scale. That's going to be a much better approach. It's going to be more in-depth about understanding how your body is changing. It's also going to be easier to adhere to something when you actually see results. Because I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody reach out to me and say, hey, I haven't lost any weight on the scale. I'm losing inches, but I feel discouraged. And to me, it's like, dude, you're losing inches. Like, don't, like, what's the problem? But it's because a lot of you have this idea that the scale has to change in order for it to be a successful weight loss approach. Instead of understanding that the type of weight that you lose is actually the most important thing.
right? If you're losing fat all day long and you're building muscle or retaining water, which again, retaining water is not a bad thing, right? To, to an extent, it could, could possibly lead to um, or could be the result of too much inflammation. But nine times out of 10, it's mostly a result of just losing weight and your body going, whoa, let's keep things sort of in the same ballpark, but still losing fat. So when you measure your inches and you look different in the mirror, like your face looks different, your, your body looks different, you're able to tell a difference between before and after photos, those are all signs of progress. You're doing all the right things. The weight as it shows up on the scale will eventually start to come down. And if you are leaner, like if you're closer to losing as much fat as you really want to and not give up you know, too many luxuries of life and, and food and things like that, then you're going to see less of a change on the scale, but you might see more of a change in your body composition. So that's another thing to keep in mind is if you're already relatively lean, you're going to see more changes in body composition than you are on the scale. If you've got 100 pounds of fat on you, you are going to see scale changes as well as seeing inches lost. The rate at which those happen is up in the air. But in my experience anyway, I've seen the majority of my clients lose inches before they start seeing the weight on the scale change to any significant degree. And I would define that as like five pounds or more. So when you're losing inches, that's a sign of progress. In fact, that's the number one sign of progress, right? If you're losing inches, you are losing body fat. In some cases, I have seen people lose weight, but not lose inches. And to a large degree, that could be muscle loss. And that usually is in extreme cases where people are only doing cardio and significantly reducing their calories, like ridiculous calorie amounts, uh, calorie deficits, like 800 to 1,000 calories less than they were consuming before, just doing cardio and not trying to maintain muscle mass. It happens rarely, but it does happen. And I have seen it happen. So if you're not doing those things, you'll be fine. All right. So that's number 18. Number 19, you have to stop eating unhealthy foods to lose weight. At the end of the day, I'm always about trying to prioritize more healthy whole food nutrition. But if you go cold turkey and cut every single unhealthy food out of your diet, very rarely, if at all, have I seen that work. Okay, some people, and again, this is this is something you have to apply to yourself, right? I can only speak in generalities because everyone's a little bit different. Some people have no problem cold turkey cutting out M&Ms and ice cream and, and sort of the more processed, higher sugar, higher fat foods, and then having small amounts here and there on special occasions, and they can stay adherent to that for a long time. Then you have people that if you cut out all of their favorite foods that are also, un, that are also processed, that are also quote unquote unhealthy, then they're going to completely derail, they're going to lose their adherence, they're going to eventually crash and then binge on those foods that they told themselves they couldn't eat. So you have to know yourself well enough to make that decision for yourself. I will say out of experience to save you some time, the vast majority of people need a little bit of that unhealthy food in their diet relatively frequently within the context of calories and macros and everything else, but they need some of that to help keep them sane. And that's completely fine. Remember that the approach that keeps you adherent is the approach that you should shoot for. That is always sort of your, your North star. That's the thing that you always want to weigh everything against, right? If you are cutting out some of these foods that you would otherwise be eating if you weren't on a diet and you start to notice that you're, you're not actually adhering to your diet, then it's probably a better idea to include small amounts of those foods that you were cutting out 
in your nutrition a couple times a week. And that will improve your adherence. And remember, adherence is important because it's the long haul of a consistent calorie deficit that gets us to the results we're looking for and helps keep them off. If we try to, if our dieting phase looks too different than our sort of unhinged uh, nutrition, then we are going to always have a battle between gaining and losing weight. Right? You can go on a diet and be very strict and lose a ton of weight, but what happens when you go back to quote-unquote normal life, right? when you're quote-unquote not dieting anymore? What are you supposed to do then? Well, you go back to eating those foods. You go back to eating more calories than you really, can, really need, and as a result, you gain all that weight back. And most studies will show that people are very bad at maintaining a diet after they've gone off it. So they can adhere through willpower and discipline for months on end. And then when that diet ends, in their mind, it's over. It's now I can eat these foods. Now I can eat this amount of food. Instead of trying to marry from the very beginning a balanced nutrition where you have moderate amounts of quote-unquote unhealthy foods intertwined with your more consistent whole food, healthy food, nutritious food, whatever you want to call it, uh, program, right? And so my goal as a coach is helping people understand, listen, you can have both. You just have to know in what ratios to consume them. You can have two squares of chocolate at night, not the whole chocolate bar, right? And this comes down to a lot of psychology. And I'm certainly not a psychology expert, but from my experience, being able to have a little bit and not feel like you can only eat this on the weekends or you can only eat this when you're not dieting frees up a lot of the anxiety around food and also frees up the scarcity mindset that a lot of us will go into when we start to realize, oh, I can't have these foods. When you start to use that language, it becomes sort of a vicious cycle in you know restricting and binging, restricting and binging. Um, so you have to know yourself, you have to know your limits, you have to know what's going to work for you. And once you understand what it is that's going to help promote the most adherence, you have to follow that the best you can and adjust things. Don't be afraid to adjust things in the middle of a diet. One of the things that I think is different about my coaching than you know other coaches, and this isn't a judgment on other coaches, it's just sort of the difference that I see is that on a week-to-week basis, I'm making adjustments if necessary to my client's programs. If I start to see a pattern where they're, they're rating their hunger uh, very high, meaning that they're, they're hungry all the time, and I see that as a consistent pattern, then I'm going to say, okay, listen, I think we've dropped calories too low. I think that right now, based on the amount of activity you're doing, how much stress you have at work, our calorie amounts are not going to work with our body or work with our metabolism. So let's do one of two things. Let's dial back the intensity of our workouts or let's bump up calories a little bit, give you a little bit of sort of a buffer from this, you know, this calorie deficit we've been sticking to, give you that little break. And then that way you're able to go into a dieting phase so much more effectively. So intermittently listening to your body and listening to this, the signals that it's giving you is going to produce much better long-term results than setting in stone what you need to do from day one and not making any adjustments. All right, so that's a, another important thing to understand. All right, so that's number 19. Let's go ahead and go into number 20, which is every meal has to be perfectly portioned. So I um, have created a couple of portion guides, um, bo- both visual and from a like a macros number standpoint. And sometimes I get questions about, like I'll have somebody say, I can't stick to this portion guide perfectly. Like I, I, it's hard to always have vegetables and have the right amount of protein and just have this many carbohydrates. And I want you to know that I create this standard 
as an ideal situation so you have a target to aim at. Never do I expect your meals to always have two servings of protein, always have one to two servings of of vegetables, uh, always have a serving of carbohydrates. I don't expect that from anyone except for maybe like a figure competitor who's like, main goal is to say, listen, I need to eat this way or else I'm not going to get the results I want. I never expect anyone to have a perfect meal plan. It's, it's simply just a target to aim for. So some days you might have two servings of your vegetables, but you're lacking in protein or carbs. Okay. Again, it's not the end of the world, but it's something to shoot for. And it's something to sort of use as a guiding light in those moments. And you certainly don't have to have the perfect calorie balanced, macro balanced meal every single time. That's just not going to happen unless you having all your meals made for you and the macros are being tracked for you or portioned for you. That would be awesome, but most of us don't live in that world. So what I always aim to tell somebody who's in this situation is, look, if you can prioritize one or two things, focus on that, right? So as an example, what I tell people is if you can only focus on one of the three components of this, you know, this meal template or this portion template is to prioritize protein. And that's based off the fact that most people are not getting enough protein. I've seen enough food logs now to see that the majority of people that I work with are not getting enough protein. I'm going to guess that you are probably not getting enough protein at your meals. So one to two servings is going to equate to anywhere between uh, 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal if you're someone who's using more of the macro uh, style of things. And so that's what I would pro- prioritize. The second thing I would prioritize is vegetables. So let's say you've gotten your protein down. Like that's a no-brainer. It's an automatic thing at this point. The next one is vegetables, okay? Because out of out of the three things, the thing that most people are lacking other than protein is vegetables. So try your best, whether that's raw or cooked or steamed or however you want to make it, making sure you get enough vegetables, at least one serving. And then third priority is carbohydrates. Most people have no problem getting enough carbs, right? Even if that's just throwing a slice of bread into your your lunch bag or whatever you're taking to work, because carbs on average are a lot easier to just grab and go and eat. There's also um, a greater amount of production being made for carbohydrates. There are sources of protein that are sort of grab and go, but I would say that protein and vegetables take more preparation. So they tend to be the thing that has, that that people um, eat less of on average because it takes a little bit more work. Now there's ways around this for sure, but again, just based on food logs that I've seen, there's a lot of anxiety around having the perfect meal. And it's really about building and targeting certain aspects of that, that visual portions guide that works best for you. Like I have a client right now who's just focusing on getting more protein. Like she's not worried about her carbohydrates. I mean, obviously being mindful is, is part of that. And that always comes with what I, what I coach, but her main priority is getting the right amount of protein. And I do that with her specifically because her appetite tends to be all over the place unless she eats, you know, relatively consistently. So protein is going to help her a lot out with her appetite being sort of unmanaged eating enough protein at meal times is going to help not only stabilize her blood sugar from a, you know, a biochemical standpoint, but from an appetite appetite standpoint, it's also going to help her stay consistent and not be overly hungry or overly, uh, you know, craving any specific foods throughout the day. Okay. So 
just understand that if you're shooting for a very specific type of portion, just do your best, right? Being perfect is never the goal. It's always just to do the best you can within whatever level of, of habit building you're currently in. All right, so that is number 20. Number 21, sudden weight spikes means you are eating too much. So when I say sudden weight spikes, I mean sort of what we talked about in the previous episode where on Monday, let, or let's take the weekend for example, on Friday, you weigh 160 pounds. The weekend comes, you know, you maybe have a little more freedom with food. Maybe you eat a little bit more than you usually do. Monday comes and you weigh 165 and you're freaking out. Like, how the, how the hell did I gain five pounds over the weekend? Well, you retained a ton of water because you had foods that had sodium and carbohydrates. And it's totally normal. It's nothing to panic about. Don't worry about it. And you think, oh, no, I got to suddenly like dramatically reduce calories. Like I, instead of sticking to my normal calorie deficit, which is usually 300 calories less than what I typically would eat to maintain my weight, I need to drop it all the way down to like 800 calories or I need to fast for 24 hours. No, you don't. Trust me when I say this, that is water weight. All right. You're just retaining water from the sodium and the carbohydrates you consumed. It's perfectly a normal response. It doesn't mean you've gained a ton of fat. That gain does not happen that quickly in that amount. So you have to be, you have to sort of tell yourself that and understand that that's what's going on. All right. You will drop that water weight over time. So understanding that means you don't have to make sudden changes to your nutrition. I get quite a few messages that say, I, I messed up this weekend. You know, what should I do? And I said, well, what were you doing before? And they may might say something like, well, I was eating in a calorie deficit. It was about 300 calories less than I usually consume for maintenance. I said, just go back to doing that. Just, but you know, I gained five pounds. Shouldn't I try to lose that right away? No, your body does not respond well to trying to lose weight quickly. So don't try to lose weight quickly. All right. The more even keel and gradual your fat loss experience is, the more likely you are to not only keep that weight off, but have less of a challenging time trying to manage your weight throughout the rest of your life. So I know it's frustrating because you want to see results now, but that is probably the biggest thing that you have to work on. You can't be impulsive with what your weight on the scale does, all right? Because the weight that you gain quickly is also quickly going to come off, all right? So if you gain five pounds over the weekend, because you had a little bit more salt, you had a little bit more calories, you had more carbohydrates than you might normally eat. You know, football starting back up again, maybe you had tons of chips and dip and that's a sodium bomb right there. Expect to gain excess water weight. It's not bad weight, it's not harmful for you, it's not fat, it's just more weight on your body, okay? Don't freak out about it. So understanding that sudden weight spikes are normal, they happen, it's not the end of the world, and not letting that sort of shift your momentum, right? Because when, we, when we're, we're quote-unquote doing good during the week, we feel good about ourselves. And sort of a natural result of that is rewarding ourselves with some sort of treat or some sort of, you know, some sort of reward. And a lot of times that is food. And if we come out of the weekend and we go, oh, man, I really overdid it. I'm just going to not eat for 24 hours and that'll fix everything. No, it won't. Because it's not, it's not necessarily at this point the pattern of calorie amounts you're consuming. It's the, the fact that you're mentally approaching the process in an unhealthy way. You're doing it in a, in a binge and purge sort of cycle. And what you'll have to 
learn over time is that these binge and purge cycles are actually what's derailing you from making long-term progress. If you uh, approach your nutrition and your calorie deficit from a much more moderate standpoint to where you're not restricting yourself a ton during the week because you think it's, you know, you can't eat certain foods, but you're, you're being moderate about your portions, you're going to have less of a tendency to want to binge on the weekends because you're not, you're not restricting yourself so heavily during the week. So, you know, having a much more balanced and sort of moderate approach, while it's not sexy or cool or exciting, it's effective. And at this point, I would hope that you are more interested in getting guaranteed results than you are with how it looks or how fancy the process is. That would be my hope anyway. And the sooner you can make that realization within yourself, the more you're going to start to see results because you're going to have a much more level progress. And you got to remember that our bodies aren't some stupid pile of meat that's just hanging out there and it's just, oh, I guess I'll do this today. Our bodies are very intelligent. If you try to push it too far out of homeostatic or homeostasis, it's going to punch right back at you and it's going to punch harder and it's going to punch more effective. It's like it's like having two boxers, right? You got a very experienced boxer, like let's say it's Mike Tyson, and then you got a rookie who's just like full of energy and and he's, you know, but he has no experience. In the beginning, the the guy who's punching and is all excited, the newbie, the rookie, is going to look really exciting, really cool, right? Mike Tyson might not come out of the out of the gate with that much energy, might be a little bit more uh, you know, uh, strategic and calm and relaxed and then that one moment where the rookie lets his guard down and Mike just goes boom and knocks him out game over right TKO knockout you have to realize that your body if you try to fight against it too much it's going to have that same sort of approach you have to work with your body it's not an enemy of yours it's not it's not a it's not something you have to try to outsmart it's actually something you want to try to co-op with and you're constantly trying to to push the limits but also understand that your body's got to push harder if you don't you know work with it so the sooner you can learn your cravings your mood your sleep your hunger cues and work with those instead of trying to force your body into a calorie deficit and force it to lose body fat you'll get better results when you work with your body okay and that's that's an important thing to understand, all right? So sudden weight spikes does not mean that you are eating too much, okay? You can very well eat higher sodium foods in a calorie deficit and still retain water, okay? So just because your weight goes up in a, in a short-term couple of days uh, over the weekend sort of thing doesn't mean you have to change everything or dramatically you know, reduce calories, all right, number 22, a large calorie deficit is better than a small one. Not true. With some clients, what I'll do is, depending on how many calories they have to work with, I might start off with a higher calorie deficit. So let's say 500 calories. And then as we, get, as we drop more body fat and as we lose more weight, I might dial back the calorie deficit. So instead of a 500 calorie decrease, it's a 300 calorie decrease decrease. Now you might wonder why would you do that? Well, here's a very important thing that most of you do not think of. Okay? 
as you start to diet down and the longer you spend in a calorie deficit, usually the crappier you'll feel, right? From an energy standpoint, you might feel better from like a mood standpoint. And this is going to be different for people that have a lot of weight to lose. You might be able to last longer with a greater calorie deficit. But if you maybe only have 10, 20, 30, 40 pounds that you want to lose, the longer you spend in a calorie deficit, the harder it's going to be, which is going to directly affect adherence. So initially to sort of jumpstart the fat loss and to motivate the person to see results, I might start off with a 500 calorie deficit. And then I'm just going to say like by week eight, let's say, let's dial it back to a 300 calorie deficit. This is going to be a slower approach, but your body is responding and we need to work with that. So like, here's a good example. When I was doing my fat loss phase at the end of May, I dropped my calories, I think it was by 400. And then I started noticing about two months in that my rate of weight loss per week was decreasing. I was also noticing other signs like cravings were increasing, uh, overall energy and mood were decreasing. So I wasn't having, my mood was pretty much directly affected. My energy was low. My tolerance to stress was low. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to dial this back. I'm only going to do a 250 to 300 calorie deficit. And I started to notice that even that small amount of calories that I had sort of added back in helped mitigate some of those negative side effects of being in a calorie deficit. So, you know, it does depend on how much fat you have to lose. Like if I have a 400 pound guy and, you know, he's been eating, you know, 4,000 calories on average a day or, or something to that extent, I'm just throwing numbers out there. Dropping him down to 3,500 isn't really going to make that much of a dent, all right? Everyone has a sort of different experience, but let's just say that that's the case. And then as I start to read all of their metabolic signals, I'll make a decision on whether or not we need to reduce the calorie deficit from 500 to 300, let's say, giving them back a couple of extra calories. Or I'll continue to go on based on their feedback and based on their, their metabolic signals. Now, you might also be wondering, well, hold on. If I'm in a 500 calorie deficit and I add 200 calories, meaning that now I'm only in a 300 calorie deficit, aren't I going to gain weight because now I'm eating more? You have to understand that a calorie deficit is a range, right? It's not a fixed number. So like I've had clients literally increase their calories. I'm working with a woman right now who is reverse dieting and she has increased her calories and she's actually lost weight. Now you might be wondering, how is that possible? Well, again, a calorie deficit is a range. So if you were eating in a very large calorie deficit for let's say three months, and yeah, that calorie deficit was working for you, but now all of a sudden it's not, you bump up calories a little bit, you're still in a calorie deficit as far as your metabolism is concerned, it's just not as much. And this is a big mistake that people make, which is why I wanted to make this a, a specific topic. Large calorie deficits for a long period of time are not going to be beneficial. I have something called the 28-day rapid fat loss protocol. And it's a, it's a calorie cycling protocol, cycle, calorie cycling protocol at the very uh, root of it. And one of the things that we do is that we, you know, we create a large calorie deficit one or two times a week, and then we go back to sort of a maintenance amount of calories. And this back and forth creates weight loss, but it's not such a um, stringent, strict Monday through Friday, eat this many calories. It's, it's modulating. So it gives you the sense that you're going, because for example, it has a 50% calorie day based on the number that you get. And 50% of total calories is is a very low amount, but it only lasts one day. 
and it's followed by a 75 and 100% calorie day. And usually the 50% days are directly after the 100% calorie day. So typically speaking, your hunger signals are not going to be as strong because you haven't gone that deep into your into a, a large calorie deficit. Anyway, there's a lot of intricate parts about it that I've spent a lot of time trying to make sure was going to work. And so what it does is it cycles these large and small calorie deficits. And it's worked for a lot of people, I would say probably more so because it's not a static number. It's sort of this modulating effect, so you never really get bored of it. But the approach there is let's create a large calorie deficit and then let's slowly add calories throughout the week to still be in a calorie deficit, but just not consume a small amount of calories so that we can still fuel things like workouts and just everyday life. And at that level, a larger calorie deficit for a short amount of time can make sense for some people. But the majority of people, if I'm putting them into sort of a bucket, are going to have much better results, much better adherence, and be able to consistently make the calorie amounts that they're, they're shooting for if they have a smaller deficit. You gotta also remember that fat loss in terms of a, you know, if you're thinking of it as like a process, is a long-term process. Okay, you're not going to lose a ton of fat in just one month, unless you have so much fat that, you know, from a percentage standpoint, you, you are losing a lot of fat. Um, so you have to understand that, that a large calorie deficit maybe for like two weeks to jumpstart results might not be a bad idea if you do it the appropriate way. But as a long-term strategy, it's not going to be effective. So I always recommend if you're doing this on your own and you're not being coached, small start with a small calorie deficit so that your margin of error is very small. Like you're not going to make a mistake having a small calorie deficit. Your results might come slower but I'd rather have slow results that are closer to guaranteed than having, you know, sudden results that I can't maintain, right? I, I don't see any advantage to losing a ton of weight and gaining it back. That just, that's never going to be someone's goal. I don't, unless maybe you're like a sumo wrestler or something, but even then I would imagine they want to be as big as possible and still function. So anyway, all right, cool. So let's go on to number 23. Every meal has to be freshly prepped. Absolutely not. I get questions all the time or I get comments that say, hey, I just don't have time to prep all my food. And I go, hell, either do I. And I, and I live a very different lifestyle than you. I'm not you know, tied to a desk for eight hours a day. Or I, you know, for me anyway, I go to a gym when gyms are open and I train for probably no more than four hours at a time. I come home and then I have a second shift usually at night. I have no excuses for meal prepping. And yet I still don't prep every single meal that I eat. Because if I did, my adherence would be very low. I wouldn't enjoy the food. There wouldn't be enough variety. It would be a lot of work to do every single time. So I do the amount of meal prep that I can do that helps keep me consistent and helps me adhere to the amount of calories that I need. But there are plenty of times where I'm going out to eat and I'm trying to be mindful of how many calories I'm eating. Or I'm buying sort of a hybrid between a healthier calorie and macro friendly meal that's also frozen that all I have to do is buy and throw in the microwave. So don't be afraid to buy healthier options that are already prepared for you or or somewhat prepared so that you have to spend or that so that you can spend less time having to prep all of your meals. Okay. Um, along those same lines, not every meal has to have vegetables. Right? It would be great if it did, but let's live in a real world here. Let's not try to make the ideal situation always the target because while it might be something to strive for, it might not be a realistic thing for you to, to expect to do. 
So if you want to buy frozen frozen chicken breast that's already seasoned, go for it. If you want to buy uh, you know vegetables that are frozen that you can throw in a pot and steam, or you can throw on a you know a, a pan and saute or whatever, go for it. Do not be afraid to use healthy, convenient options because you're a real human who lives in the real world, who doesn't have every single free moment to prepare your food, right? You want to spend your time relaxing or with your family or just hanging out and not having to do any sort of attention draining activity, okay? So that was number 23. Number 24, frozen foods are less nutritious than fresh foods. This was actually a really interesting topic that I learned about not too long ago. And I read a a paper that Um, compared the differences between fresh, frozen, and canned vegetables and fruits. And what they found was is that to a very small degree, but significant to make a point about it, is that frozen vegetables and fruits are actually fresher than fresh ones. And that's because as soon as fresh or as soon as the product or the produce is picked, it is put on ice and it's frozen and it's put on a truck frozen. So it's preserving all those nutrients. So let's use an apple, for example. You pick an apple off the tree. In the frozen the frozen example, they put it on ice, they freeze it, and they put it on a truck, and then they deliver it, let's say, in a package with a bunch of other apples, and it's, it's frozen, it's in the freezer section. A fresh apple gets picked, gets put probably on ice temporarily, but then gets put on the shelf and has less of its nutrients preserved because it's not in cold storage. You take canned, and canned out of all three was technically nutritionally the worst out of all three. So frozen and fresh, at the end of the article or the end of the um, the study, they said, listen, if you're picking between fresh and frozen, you're good, right? Canned, you're going to see some diminishing you know, nutritional value there, and that's to be expected, right, just because of the way it is. So in some instances, frozen might actually be a better option in terms of sealed in nutrition than fresh. But don't split hairs, all right? Don't worry so much about, like, if frozen is cheaper, that's fine. You can buy frozen, like, if that works better for your budget. Budget. If you like the taste of a fresh apple and you don't like what, what it tastes like when it's thawed out, then get a fresh apple. Don't, again, don't split hairs. It's not like you're going to have a tremendously different experience just because you had a frozen versus a fresh, um, you know, piece of fruit or vegetable or whatever. So, Buy what works best for you. I find frozen fruits and vegetables to be more convenient because they preserve longer. And that means that I don't have to worry about eating them right away. I can throw them in the freezer. You can also buy fresh. And if you don't eat all of it, you can put it in a bag and throw it in the freezer. So, you know, do what works best for you and always err on the side of of convenience because the more convenient a healthy option is, the easier it's going to be to adhere to that, that option. All right, number 25, you have to burn off everything you eat. Not true at all. Your body naturally burns the majority of your calories just being alive. Up to 70% of the calories you burn every single day is you just functioning in the world, not having done any exercise or any serious activity. It's just you being alive and standing upright, essentially. Outside of that, there's a small percentage of calories that you burn being active. All right, so by small, I mean like traditional formal exercise can burn up to like 5 to 15% of total calories, which isn't a lot in the grand scheme of things. Just being active and not sedentary, so that can mean taking the stairs instead of the elevator, parking far away from grocery stores or stores and walking, just getting more steps in essentially is probably the most flexible and 
the one that you have the most control of when it comes to burning calories. And no, you certainly don't have to burn off everything that you eat. So if you eat you know, a certain amount of calories, you don't have to burn that many calories in purposeful exercise. So like I had a woman reach out to me the other day and said, I eat 1300 calories. Do I have to run on the treadmill until I burn 1300 calories? I said, absolutely not. You only have to burn a fraction of the calories that you consume to create a calorie deficit. And I even told her, I said, listen, it would probably be better for you right now to focus more on controlling how many calories you consume than trying to make up for it through exercise. People that routinely try to burn more calories than they consume are actually just adding fuel to the fire because the more calories you try to burn outside of sort of a normal range that you might experience in a typical workout the greater that's going to stimulate your appetite which is only going to put you further in the hole when it comes to over consuming um, when they've done studies on people that exercise and burn a lot of calories the vast majority of them are compensating by eating more calories. And a lot of times it's subconscious, right? It's it's having an extra ser serving because they're saying, oh, well, I'm still hungry. I should, you know, feed my body. Well, yeah, but that hunger is being artificially stimulated by the more the, the more calories that you're burning through exercise. So it's a vicious cycle. Long story short, you don't have to burn off every single thing that you eat through, you know, running on the treadmill or doing a workout. Number 26, you have to meal prep all the food you eat to lose weight not true at all. In fact, you could eat a uh, food that's been entirely prepared by other people. If you are controlling calories appropriate enough, you will create a calorie deficit. So you don't always have to eat healthy food to lose weight, although it's going to be easier to eat more fiber and protein-rich foods um, when you're trying to lose weight because they're going to help control things like appetite. But you certainly don't have to uh, only eat the food that you meal prep in order to lose weight. Number 27, the best thing to do after a day of overeating is fast. We sort of alluded to this earlier. No, it's not. It's just to go back to whatever calorie deficit you had previously. So if, if the weekend is just you like binge eating and you're maybe conscious of it or not conscious of it, and it, let's say it's for, you know, it happens for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. You might think, okay, on Monday, I should just fast for 24 hours. No, that's not a good idea. That's just perpetuating the binge and fasting cycle or the binging and purging cycle, if you're thinking of it in sort of a traditional um, disordered eating way. But no, you, you don't have to suddenly over-restrict calories. Just get back on whatever moderate calorie deficit you had planned originally, right? Now, I'll tell you this just anecdotally, if I eat a lot on the weekend, like my birthday weekend was last week, I ate a lot during that weekend. Wasn't ashamed of it, wasn't, didn't feel guilty, but on Monday, I really wasn't hungry. <laughs> I don't think I ate until dinner on Monday because I just, I just wasn't hungry. It's not that I was forcing myself to starve so because I deserved it and I ate too many calories. I just wasn't hungry. Like the entire day I was thinking, I wonder when I'm going to get hungry. And so if you're sort of in tune with your hunger signals, uh, you know, intimately enough, you'll understand, okay, well, maybe I unintentionally fast for 24 hours, but I'm doing it because I'm not hungry and I'm, I'm not feeling any sort of hunger signals whatsoever. I'm just going to go with it. And sometimes that will happen. But forcing yourself to not eat for 24 hours, even in the midst of being hungry, is very different than just sort of going with the flow and listening to your hunger signals. All right. Cool. So that is number 27. Number 28, you have to eat the amount of calories given to you regardless of your hunger or fullness. So this happens typically with people that are, um, I would say, 
if you're someone who's trying to lose weight, you might have set a calorie deficit that you're not 100% sure about yet. And that, let's say that you set that deficit at 2,000 calories. And for two weeks straight, you're not able to get up to 2,000 calories. Like you're, you're trying your best to fit in more calories here and there, but you're not hungry and you feel like you for, if you were going to eat anymore, you would be overly stuffed and uncomfortable. But you feel as though you have to get those 2,000 calories because that's your deficit number and that's what you have to do to lose weight. You are not going to effectively lose weight long term if you are force feeding yourself just to meet a certain calorie amount. So do not feel as though you are obligated to get a very specific amount of calories if you're consistently having to force feed yourself. What's probably happening is, is that your deficit isn't low enough for what, you're, what you actually need. So your hunger and your satiety come into play with calories as well. It's not like a fixed number is going to determine exactly what you need. It's a good starting place, but you have to change things and alter things based on uh, you know, a couple of different factors. So what I would say is, and let's shift gears just really quickly, because I also get this question with those that are trying to reverse diet, that are trying to increase the amount of calories they eat, but they've been so used to eating such a low amount of calories that their hunger really isn't as, um, in t- they're not as in tune with their hunger as they could otherwise be. So you might have somebody say, oh, well, you know, to reverse diet, you need to add calories back. Okay. It's like, well, how much? Well, let's say, let's set a moderate amount of 200 calories more than you were eating before. And let's say that that's just too much for you at the start. Okay, no big deal. Let's dial it back to only increase 50 to 100 calories in the beginning so that you're not pushing yourself and overly stuffing yourself, right? That's just not going to be a long-term strategy for success or adherence. So sometimes it's the rate at which you increase calories or decrease calories or just, you know, changing up your your calorie deficit a little bit to work a little bit more with your appetite. Because if you're force-feeding yourself to meet a certain amount of calories, that's not a good experience. That's going to hinder your ability to adhere to a program and it's just not going to work for you long term. So I'm, I'm really glad that that question has been brought up in the past uh, because it sounds like it's a real thing that, that, that you are experiencing. All right. So we just hit on number 28. So we're on 29. Focusing on what you eat is a negative behavior pattern. So I've gotten this comment and this is certainly not the majority of people, but Some people feel as though that paying close attention to what you eat and managing your calories is some form of disordered eating, which is sort of sad because if you were to say the same thing about your, your, your finances, nobody, everyone would look at you like an idiot. Oh, you're, you're, you have a problem with money because you keep track of how much you save and how much you spend. Anyone who said that would, everyone look at them like you're stupid, right? (laughs) That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. The same applies with calories. If you're being mindful about how much you eat, that is not a not as does not a disordered eating pattern. Now, if you're like not eating any calories hardly at all during the week, and then you're going out and eating, you know, let, let's just use numbers again to make this simple. Like if you're restricting calories so much that you're only eating a thousand calories Monday through Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday you go out and just pig out every single day, that is disordered eating, right? But managing your calories, being smart, setting up a calorie deficit, being careful about, you know, the the portions that you eat foods in, that is not disordered eating. For some people, they can become too obsessed with that and have a very rigid mindset and not have enough flexibility. That is a real thing. And I do work with people who have been so married to very specific numbers and, and thinking that if they veer 
any which way off of the beaten path or whatever path they've set for themselves that they're going to suddenly blow up to 300 pounds and they're going to have to start their journey all over. That's a mindset thing. All right. That is understanding the limits because it's important to understand your boundaries and that way you can move fluidly between them, but not become so rigid that you get in this mindset that any sort of variation from the, the whatever consistency you've built is going to ruin your progress long term. So it's a fine line and it's very much a mental thing. And if you understand how to approach it with, with calm, with moderation, with flexibility, it becomes a lot easier to understand, okay, this is becoming too obsessive. I need to dial back or I'm getting too loose with this. Like I've, I've, I've had way too many nights where I'm overeating calories. I need to dial myself back in and I need to get a little bit more disciplined. It's being okay with being fluid with that within that that creates a lot less anxiety. If you're suddenly, you know, being too rigid, that's where people can get into trouble. So just understand that going in. All right, number 30, and we have a couple of bonus ones that I wrote down here. So we got more than just 30. Planning out your meals and managing your calories is disordered eating. So this sort of goes into it as well. And this can come from people that maybe you work with, maybe you're, you know, you're on some sort of uh, you know healthier eating plan or whatever your main goal is, and people might wonder why. Oh well, I got this shit a lot. I got I got so much shit from people for like bringing my own food and like trying you know experimenting with different meal plans and different calorie amounts and like oh you're Mr. Healthy, you're eating lettuce today. And it's like fuck off. Like you're just mad because you don't have this level of discipline, or you're just mad because you don't actually put the work in to try to take care of yourself. And I never let it get the best of me, but like in retrospect, I see how hurt a lot of these people were and as a way of projecting it onto me and not having to deal with it themselves, that's what they did. And I have clients who feel the pressure from people, like for instance, if someone comes to your place of work and they make a bunch of things for, you know, like a bunch of cookies for the office and you don't take one, that they take that personally. It's like, no, this isn't, I'm not doing this because I'm trying to passively, aggressively, you know, hurt you or, or upset you. I'm just very honed in on what I'm trying to do with my own personal self-improvement. And I know that if I have that cookie, I'm going to have to track it. And as a result of having to track that, it might throw up my macronutrients. And don't get me wrong, it can be obsessive. Like you can definitely just have the damn cookie is, you know, part of it. But at the same time, if that you know, let's call her Susie, brings in cookies every single week. It's like, okay, okay, Susie, relax. I'm not going to have every single cookie that you bring in, right? So social eating can be sort of hard to manage sometimes, but if you have moderation with it, like pretty much everything else, you'll be okay. All right. So it's not, you're not a disordered eating victim. If you're planning out your meals and you're managing your calories, Right? That's actually just being smart. The same way that managing your money and saving when you can is smart. No one's going to say that you're stupid for trying to manage your money and save as much as you can or invest as much as you can. So the people that tell you things like that, they're stupid and you don't need to listen to them. Um, okay, number 31. So these are some bonuses. We have about five minutes. You can lose weight fast and keep it off. No, you can't. All right. The only way you can do that is if the way that you're losing weight happens to be fast, but the approach that you're taking is still something you can manage for the rest of your life. So probably the only caveat to this is if you weigh 450 pounds and you have, let's say, 250 pounds of body fat and you start eating better, and let's say that the first week you lose seven pounds, 
okay, great. But you didn't lose seven pounds because you like starved yourself. You just lost seven pounds because you, you had seven pounds to lose. And because you have a lot of body fat, you might lose weight quicker. Eventually, as you get lower and lower in body fat percentage, the, the rate at weight loss that you experience is going to go down. So instead of losing seven pounds a week, you might only lose two or three, which is still amazing. Like remember, the standard and sort of the, the range you want to stay within is 0.5 to two pounds a week. If you're somewhere in that range, anywhere in that range, you're doing a very good job when it comes to moderate and controlled fat loss. So that's an important thing to understand. Okay, so that was number 31. Number 32, making calorie and workout decisions based on daily weight changes is a good strategy. Wrong. That is not a good strategy. The best thing you can do after a day of missing a workout or a day of overeating calories is to just go back to whatever plan you were on before, whatever calorie deficit you had before, whatever workout schedule you had before. Nothing changes. You had one bad day. If you don't expect one bad day from yourself, Hell, if you don't expect a couple of bad days for yourself in a, you know, a month or even a week, you're not being realistic about what life is. You're not being realistic about what's going to happen. You have to build into any program or any mindset that you're achieving, that you're shooting for to achieve something. You have to have bad days planned in, right? What you are going to do when you have a bad day. The other day I was actually, I actually experienced this and it seemed like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And I missed my workout. I ended up eating out of comfort. And as a result, I just sort of, that day just sort of didn't work out, right? It just was a shit day. But what did I do the next day? I woke up. I did my workout. I managed my calories better. I prepped some of the food that I hadn't prepped over the weekend. It was like yesterday never happened. When you have a bad workout or a bad calorie day, just go back to normal. Just go back to what you were doing before. Go back to your calorie deficit, go back to your meal prep, go back to your plan. And if you don't have a plan yet, get one. Because the best way to get back on track is to have a plan for what you're going to do. If you're just sort of haphazardly hoping that you're just going to eat less calories, that's a quick way to fail. Have a plan. Even if it's not elaborate and, and isn't extremely detailed, have a plan. Have some sort of plan. I'm going to eat this for lunch tomorrow. I'm going to have that for dinner tomorrow. I'm going to, you know, these, these foods have proteins, carbs, and fats. I've got my veggies. Have a plan. doesn't have to be down to the, you know, nth calorie, but have a plan so that you're not just shooting in the dark and you have nothing to come back to. One of the, the best things that I think when it comes to planning is that when you have a plan and you're used to running that plan, you're going to veer off that plan a couple of times. I, I do. I mean, every weekend is sl some slight variation that I didn't prepare for. Like I forgot we had an event or we, I forgot we were doing this. But I know that on Monday I can get right back to sort of my routine because I built that routine over time. And it, it did not happen overnight. It took a lot of years to get used to this sort of groove. But I built the groove and I can always go back to it and actually feel comfortable in that groove because I've been able to maintain the different things that I want to do with my calories, with my body composition, with my health. And no matter how far I veer outside of that groove, I can always go back to it because it's something that I've built and I've planned and I've created a routine out of. All right, very cool. Last one, number 33, healthy foods help you burn more fat. Not true at all, okay? Remember we talked a little bit about how protein can be more metabolically expensive, so you burn more calories trying to digest protein, but outside of that and that small 10% of total calories you burn from digesting, outside of that, 
healthy foods and unhealthy foods do not burn calories differently, right? If you have a Snickers that's 200 calories versus a chicken breast that's 200 calories, those 200 calories at the very root of energy is the same. Now, the effect hormonally or the effect on satiety or the effect on energy might be a little bit different, right? The chicken breast might keep you full longer, whereas the Snickers might only keep you full for half an hour. So they have different effects, but at the caloric level, it's still 200 calories, which is one of the reasons why that guy, Mark Halb, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, lost 30 pounds, I think it was 30 pounds in three months, eating a Twinkie diet because he was controlling calories. Now, I certainly don't think that you should go out and eat Twinkies. And he even said, listen, I, I can't maintain this. This is not something I'm going to be able to do the rest of my life. But I wanted to prove a point that calories at the end of the day are the most important thing. And then how you manage those calories based on the different foods that you eat and the different ratios and the moderation with certain things and the you know routine with eating more whole foods. All that matters. But let's just get down to the very most important thing. Calories change weight. And if you're not prioritizing overall calorie balance, it doesn't matter how healthy your food is. You can be fat or you can overeat healthy food, right? You might think, oh, peanut butter is healthy. It comes from peanuts and peanuts grow out of the earth. So that has nutrients and all this. Yeah, peanuts also have a shit ton of calories. So if you were to eat a lot of peanuts and you were to overeat, you would gain those calories of fat. Just because it's healthy food doesn't mean it can't be stored as fat. And that's really all I meant to say in this last little this little, this little tip is that just because it's healthy food doesn't mean that you're immune to gaining fat if you overeat it. All right. All right. Very cool. Well, that is that episode. And that is all 30 myths about dieting that you need to unlearn. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding these, maybe you want some more elaboration or maybe it uniquely affects you and you want some more guidance, feel free to reach out to me. Before you go, don't forget to leave a comment and a rating of the podcast. I would really appreciate it. And that being said, I will see you in a future podcast episode. Have a great day.